0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody.
1: It's Mark Graben here. Welcome to the podcast. It's episode 469 for February 22nd, 2023. I'm joined today by Matt May and Pablo Dominguez. You'll learn more about them in a minute, but they are authors of the new book. And by new, I mean it was released yesterday what a unicorn knows. So one of the themes there, and I think this episode has a little bit of something for everybody. One of their themes is constant experimentation, whether you are Toyota, a startup, or, or something in between. So I hope you'll listen, whether you are doing continuous improvement in a larger organization, or if you are an entrepreneur or a devotee of the Lean Startup methodology. Um, I hope you enjoy the episode. For links and more information, you can go to leanblog.org slash 469. I'm joined today by Matt May and Pablo Dominguez. They are the authors of a new book. I have a copy here for those who are watching on YouTube, What a Unicorn Knows, How Leading Entrepreneurs Use Lean Principles to Drive Sustainable Growth. Matt has been here before a couple of times, episodes 67 and 103. We've done a couple of video podcast which I don't think ended up in the audio podcast and he was also my guest for episode 39 of My Favorite Mistake and uh, Pablo is here for the first time so before I tell you a little bit more about them first off welcome to the podcast Matt and Pablo
0: how are you Thank you thank you and good to see you again Mark
1: I I, I was trying to search Matt like I feel like it hasn't been that long since we've done an episode but that may well be the case. We've done episodes about some of your previous books. But we I think won't... the last thing was my favorite mistake. right. And that was maybe about 18 months ago. but' I'll, I'll put links to those past episodes in the show notes. But let me first tell you a little bit more about Pablo Dominguez. He is an operating partner at Insight Partners a leading global venture capital and private equity firm that invests in high-growth technology and software scale-up companies, as they call them. And we'll talk about that term today. Uh, Companies that are driving transformative change in their industries. So Pablo has spent his entire career uh, as a go-to-market and sales-focused operator. He's worked in consulting, public companies, startups, and and most recently, these companies they refer to as scale-ups. And that includes using the application of lean principles, to help drive sustainable growth. And and we're definitely gonna talk about that a lot today. And uh, Matt May leads Lean Scale Up program at Insight Partners working with Pablo. So Matt has a a long mastery of lean principles and methodologies. He spent nearly a decade inside Toyota where he played an integral part in launching the University of Toyota, which was their corporate university dedicated to teaching, preserving and expanding the Toyota way. Matt is previously the author of many great books, I'm gonna say countless, but they are literally countable, but a couple (laughs) of those are The Elegant Solution and most recently, Winning the Brain Game. Um, So you've got the new book again, What a Unicorn Knows. Um, We're we're gonna get to know Pablo and Matt and and how you came to work together uh, a little bit here. So Pablo, since it's your first time here, I like to hit guests with this lean origin story. Um, I'd love to hear yours.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. Um, Well, my lean origin story starts with Matt May. Um, Matt and I have been working together for 11 years. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with him at a public company 11 years ago, where he helped us solve a lot of our issues uh, within the sales organization. And then given the success we had there over multiple years, uh, we worked together at a startup I was at after that, um, working both in sales, uh, post-sales, services, and HR. Solving uh, issues there, and then I joined Insight Partners about four and a half years ago, and uh, couldn't imagine not leveraging Matt's skills. So Matt's been helping us here at Insight uh, really tackle a lot of the uh, you know growth challenges that our portfolio companies may have, and applying lean to those. So really excited to share uh, a lot of what we've been working on.
1: Yeah, and I want to ask going back to some of those early days. I mean, what was the context of the role you were in? At the time, Pablo.
2: I mean, like, what what
1: resonated with you about lean in general?
2: Yeah, and I think this is why we wrote the book. So, I was running global business operations for a Fortune 250 company, um, supporting around 8,000 salespeople, 12 business units, and <clears throat> most of lean is bred in, you know, manufacturing or in product development. And what Matt and I have been able to do is sort of flip that and apply it to the go to market lens, right? And so. Uh, in that example, in the public company, we basically look to streamline the quote to cash process, right? So as a lead comes into marketing, gets converted into an opportunity in sales, gets closed, and then you know goes to implementation and a customer starts getting value, that process over time as any company, as you add more people, technology, there's technical debt, becomes froth with uh, waste. And so Matt helped us really identify how to remove a lot of that waste to decrease the time to value, um, which is really transformational. So love that we've been able to apply it more to the marketing and sales and post-sales lens versus the traditional lens that most people are used to. Yeah.
1: Now, Matt, let me bounce it over to you. I mean, what what Pablo said there sounds almost exactly like the old Taichino line, something to the effect of all we're doing is trying to reduce the time between receiving the order and receiving cash. Is that directionally correct or t- tell me more about that idea of just compressing that time
0: it's not only directionally correct it's literally correct okay. um it, it's it's <laughs> it's one of the stories that I don't think it's told much in much of the traditional lean literature but having worked in the sales and marketing arm of Toyota um it was a story I think we heard more often than you know our counterparts in the in the I don't know, parts distribution, the, the production side of the business. And I always sort of called it the dirty little secret that this was all about getting cash in the door. Um, and what's the easiest way to do that? What's the shortest route to doing that? What's the cheapest, most cost-effective way of doing that? Because Toyota sort of sprang from the dust and rubble, um, at least in the car, part of the of their business following World War II, didn't have a lot of resources And I've kind of maintained that genetics all the way through, but I just thought that um, I think one of the first things I said to Pablo and his team, um, those 11 years ago, when I took them through the official University of Toyota uh, lean simulation, which to this day we use with tech forward companies, I said, here's the secret. It is not about quality, cost, speed. It's really about shortening that, you know, order to cash. And we use quote to cash, you know, it's kind of a Salesforce kind of um, nomenclature, but it is the driving force. So directionally, um, we're just sort of trying to take a whole company approach to that mentality here because the context that the gap in the marketplace when it comes to lean is that go to market, you know, kind of pointy end of the spear, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that's just, just hasn't really been tackled.
1: Yeah. So then, coming back to your story, Matt, and in recent years, how did you come to work formally? You know, we've heard kind of Pablo's side of you know past experiences and wanting to bring you in. What's your perspective on um, you know starting to work together and being part of Insight Partners?
0: Uh, well, you know, it, it. I have followed Pablo um, in every time he's uh, gone someplace. Um, he's looked around as a good leader does, and basically says, you know, things are good but I know they can be better. Um, And one of the things I think that makes us work well together is the fact that we're both operationally minded. Um, I'm a practitioner, he's a a practitioner. We don't necessarily study the problem as like a scholar would. We look at it from the business perspective, the business lens, and how can we apply things that would work, that are field tested, that gets everyone involved. So it's not just like a consulting uh, you know, that traditional conventional consulting assignment, arm's length, let me tap your brain, feedback to you all your best ideas. Let's pull them out of the people doing the work. And that is just, that, that's, you know, that, that's part and parcel to the lean approach anyway. Right.
1: Uh, it's a familiar mindset, like you were, you were describing there. And, you know, Pablo, let me, let me turn it to you. I'd be curious to hear your recollections of of that lean simulation, because, you know, is. As Matt had a lot of experience, <clears throat> even back at Toyota, kind of bringing TPS outside of the factory walls. I mean, I'd be curious to hear your reaction. Say, oh, we're going to do uh, a Toyota simulation. Like, how, how how did you experience that and see the connections then to the work that you were doing?
2: Yeah, so I've had the benefit of now sitting in those simulations maybe forty times since I've been with Matt, and the first time though. You know, you're kind of like, what's going on here? The guys got tables set up with little cars and parts, and your first thought in a in a tech forward company is like, you know, we don't manufacture widgets, right? So, all right, this will be a cool exercise. Um, but the action, the the exercise is actually pretty eye opening, right? Because regardless of what you create as ultimate value, the intent is to show before. What something was like process right um rife with complete inefficiencies uh to then an end state which you go, wow, what an elegant solution how could they not have thought of that before right and so Matt has a very good way of you know taking you on the journey from like first step to letting people come up with their own solutions to so then showing the output and Getting the audience in the mindset of, okay, now how do I apply what Toyota did in an actual manufacturer of a car to streamlining my process, regardless of what business you're in, right? You could be in tech, you could be in healthcare, it doesn't really matter. Um, that leap is easy for some, and for, for others, it's hard. And Matt and I have an example of one person in one of our sessions goes, I don't know why we just spent time doing this. We don't manufacture anything. We're like we do software. This is stupid. So some people don't make that switch as quickly. But um, honestly, having also uh, be, as being someone who's done all sorts of developmental activities, etc., I love this one. Every single time we do it, I'm like, I love seeing people's eyes just go, "Oh my god, wow!" Yeah. So it's exciting.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's that excitement. The oh wow. And then sometimes people say, oh crap. And like they they feel bad about discovering <laughs> the waste or the opportunity. Oh yeah. I'd, I'd be curious to hear from either of you, either experiencing that and or coaching others through almost like having to counsel them, like now that they're seeing the waste.
0: Well, I don't think we've had any nervous breakdowns, Pablo, but um. <laughs> There have been some oh crap sort of moments. It's like how could you know kind of like Pablo said, how could we not do this? And I think the it, if I if I do my job right with with the simulation, people get the connection. Um, to their own work, and it's not about a car. It's about hey, I got code that I'm you know developing. I got to ship that code to someone else who then develops that in and packages it and gets it out to the marketplace. They begin to see all those relationships, um, and they sort of lean in right away. Pardon the, pardon the, uh, pardon the pun. Um, and the reason that we do it to this day is because it does kind of wipe the slate clean. <clears throat> Um, There's no real talking head PowerPoint. I don't beat anyone over the head with all kinds of lean or Japanese concepts. It's they just kind of at a very visceral level, get the difference between um, achieving far better results, four to five X better results um, by thinking through high leverage points. And they see that application to their own business. And we are never without um, a target rich Environment, so to speak, so um, plenty, of, plenty of targets to hit, um, and they kind of see it right away, and they're very excited to get going. I think it also, Mark,
2: we start with the simulation before we actually go into the workshop, right? So it also reduces the barriers for people because there's different, there's different people of different, you know, organizational teams, different levels, and it gets them into the mode of like, wow, now I can't wait to go do this with our company. If that's what this company did, like let's go apply the principles. So it's a good it's a good way to build some camaraderie, some some team building before actually getting into the meat of this solving,
1: yeah so let's let's talk about uh, the book and 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 how your past experiences have have led to this. the book again, uh, what a unicorn knows. First off, the word unicorn. you know within startup circles or investment circles. I mean, i I think Facebook is one that was considered. A unicorn. Um, what what what's meant by that term? Pablo, take
0: it away.
2: Yeah. So it was it was coined by cowboy ventures. Um, and we'll use the term as it was defined by them was any company public or private valued over a billion dollars. Right. And so typically now people sometimes say, well, hey, what startups are being valued at a billion versus public? But um at the time back in you know, 13, 14. Um there were very few unicorns per se, right? So um I think you know that's sort of why the term is used. It's this magical, you know, beast that is that is difficult to attain. Obviously, last year um we saw the number of unicorns almost double year over year in terms of prior years, if not almost triple, um, just because valuations were, you know, growing at different rates than before. Um, It doesn't take away from the fact that the reason why we've called it you know, What a Unicorn Knows is what do some of the best unicorns that have been out there, what do we see um, for those companies that are successful? How have they been able to drive sustainable growth to maintain that status um, and continue to grow effectively versus um, those that have not? So we wanted to share what those principles are, what people should be aspiring to if they want to build a... Sustainable business that has significant growth over time, Mm
0: -hmm. and we're We're lucky. lucky. Go ahead, Matt. Sorry, I'd say we we are we are quite fortunate in the fact that if you think about how most books are written, not every book, but but many books, including ones that I've written, Mark, you've written, um, the the sample size is quite small. Um, and it's often, um, sort of biased. We have this, this unbelievable, uh, playground, so to speak, of over 500, uh, software companies. And to be able to say what separates the best from the rest, even among those. Is something that very few people uh, can do. Scholars will won't don't have that. Um, most people have you know at most maybe a dozen, couple fistfuls of companies that they can point to, cherry pick. Um, but when you've got a huge sample size like that, and you can see patterns, um, you can take kind of this whole company perspective, um, overlaid with a lean mindset. And I think there's something to walk away with there that doesn't exist in the marketplace right now.
1: Yeah. So what, you know, you, uh, you know, Pablo, you mentioned that Cowboy Ventures definition, you know, follow up question for you or or Matt. I mean, what what's your definition or is is there a consensus modern definition or do you have one that of your own that you prefer?
2: It's, just, it's the same. I think um, it's either all public and private or just private. Right. So um, I think sometimes people when people say, well, what are the top unicorns today? Sometimes they meet the ones that have not gone public yet um but for the purposes of when we're making discussions or the book we've stuck to the original definition just in case people are are confused so
1: but as with anything the question is how do you get from here to there and as as you looked at those companies i mean where 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 did you where did that access come from were they they companies that insight partners had invested in or others in your network
2: yeah it's a mix of both um to matt's point um We've had the benefited insight of you know, minting over seventy five plus um, uh, unicorns ourselves. Uh, Matt and I and I, Matt and I have had the benefit of working in the public markets also with other uh, public unicorns. So I think the the experience of working both with those public companies and also the broad portfolio at insight, but also working with non-insight startup companies that are valued at a billion plus because they're, it's an ecosystem that we also work with as well. So I think those three data points have allowed us to triangulate what good looks like and the pattern recognition that we have um, has helped us sort of form some of our, you know, uh, our basis for our opinions and facts.
1: So before reaching that that state of unicorn, you know, there's this progression that seemed to spell out and talk about in the book, going from startup, which could mean just barely off the ground, no customers yet, pre-revenue, to the scale-up. So, you know, I guess it brings us back to the question of what do you mean by a scale-up and, and when does a startup get to the point where they might say, okay, scale-up is now a better label?
0: Uh, You know, there are, there's some sort of standard definitions. I think you could probably just go on Wikipedia and they would give you a definition, um, something to the effect of, you know, 20% growth past three years, that kind of thing. So it's essentially you found you have a a company that in the startup phase is looking for product market fit. Um, Those in the scale up phase have found a uh, product market fit. They're looking more for a go to market fit, um, which is sort of where we come in. So they've, they're growing rapidly. um, they're looking to to scale to grow even more, and uh, what they're lacking is because it's it's such a high velocity uh, organization, um really you know looking for discipline sometimes because to reach certain inflection points, if you don't have the scaffolding uh, in place, then all that you've built um is at risk of, of potentially crumbling. Um, which is where we come in, and the fact that um, the go-to-market fit is probably the uh, you know the priority number one is right in our that's right in our wheelhouse. So um, that's how we think about it. Yeah, and you but, know the final phase being grown up,
1: yeah, grown up. So you know, uh, you know, Pablo, let, let me ask a follow-up question for you. You know, there's probably a lot of entrepreneurs listening, but we might also have listeners who are more uh, you know uh, from coming from more traditional lean enterprise, lean manufacturing um, companies and roles, but let's say they have an idea. Like, I mean, you know, a lot of people say so they have their their dreams of the company they'd like they'd like to start. Can you can you kind of talk us through first, you know, this idea of finding product market fit? Where, you know, an example of um, you know, going what it means to find that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um at its first, sort of like at its core, you know, a founder, whether you're a technical founder or GTM founder, you've got an idea to build something. And so when you first build that, um, you might have a sense for who you're selling it to, what the value proposition is, what you're going to charge for it. But early on, you don't, right? You're just trying to test the waters of um, where is it going to land and is there going to be demand for it, right? And it takes a couple of customers to try to understand like, okay, Am I successful selling to, you know, enterprise customers or mid-market customers or SMB, small, medium businesses, right? Because you can be selling to different types of customers. Is it better sold to a certain vertical? Um, Who's my actual buyer that's going to buy this at scale, right? So until you have a repeatable sales process um, where there is clear uh, demand for the product and people understand exactly what you're selling, you've sort of just got an idea and you're testing it right? And so with the sort of like lean concepts of constant experimentation, which is in our, you know, our second chapter, when you don't have product market fit, that's basically what you're doing. You're testing the waters to see what sticks. Um, Companies sometimes get product market fit early on. You could get to a million dollars in revenue and have very strong product market fit and take off. You could get to 10 million, um, and not necessarily have good product market fit, but there's demand for your product elsewhere, but you may not be able to scale past that, right? So it just depends, but really narrowing down your customer, your buyer, and building a repeatable motion is what gets you out of product market fit. Yeah. Or into product market fit, sorry.
1: Yeah. And then is there still risk Of companies making the mistake of trying to scale too quickly before they found product market fit, or investors just not making that possible, of of not really funding someone to try to go big before they have that nailed the product market fit?
2: Absolutely. Um, Us as investors, so Insight typically invests when there is product market fit, right? And so our job, Matt and I, and everybody who's on the operating side, because Insight Partners has the investors and then a team called OnSite which is basically designed to help you scale once we make the investment, right? And absolutely, if you try to scale too quickly and you don't have product market fit, you will probably burn through a lot of your cash that you have on hand or debt that you have just because you're not going to find that repeatable motion. You're going to stall, right? Which is why it's very important to get product market fit right um, so you can start to build out um, your organization, products, et cetera.
1: And then, can you give an example or kind of walk through then that progression of of finding go to market fit? Like, what what's the the failure mode or the problem, if you will, of of somebody not yet having the go to market fit?
2: Yeah. So so let's let's pretend you've got a good product, um, and let's pretend you can sell it. You know, broadly, <coughs> there's I'll I'll simplify it. Um, there's three main routes to market. Right. You can have a product led motion. And there's tons of different product-led motions. Sometimes people think product-led just means um, I buy online and I don't need to talk to a human being, right? But there's a product-led motion, motion, which has a lot of elements. There's a sales-led motion, which is primarily direct. And then there's a channel-led motion, right? Indirect. Um, So you're leveraging, you know, for all intents and purposes, a value-added reseller, an Accenture, uh, something like that. And so... Those are your routes to market in terms of how you would distribute your your solution. Um, There's nuances obviously obviously to that, but that is also hard because people try to sometimes think, well, hey, I'm going to try and do all three of these. Well, your product may not be channel friendly and the channel may not actually value it to resell it for you or to help you, right? That's okay. Your product also may not have a PLG motion. That's okay. Or it may do great PLG, product-led growth. And now you wanna take it direct or through the enterprise, but it's not enterprise ready, right? So you're selling to Pfizer, a uh, Fortune 500 company versus a you know 20-person company, very different sales motion and they have different requirements, security, et cetera. So you've gotta make sure your product also meets those needs. So um, getting that GTM go-to-market fit takes time, but it also it also is an evolution. You may introduce PLG very late, or you might introduce enterprise very late, or channel as you start to mature, as you start to go into different countries and markets that necessitate a different motion. So it's definitely a
0: journey that never stops. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear- Kind of lands us on the doorstep of strategy, if you think about it. Um, uh, You know, and there are, and not to be critical, but there are- Tools out there like, for example, and this is right to Pablo's point, um, tools out there that are widely uh, in use, like, like say, the business model canvas, where there's room on that canvas to talk about channels, to talk about uh, customers, relationships with customers. and, um, And the problem with them is that they don't allow you to prioritize. The best use of your resources, because you can't do everything that you want to do. You strategy is, and you know, our very first principle is strategic speed, um, which is is really the drivability of the of the vehicle we're calling a, a scale up. Um, if you think about it. Um, but you have to absolutely make choices on where you are going to focus your resources and most importantly where you are not. And tools like that are great as frameworks um, to begin the thinking process, especially perhaps at the startup phase. But when you are in your scale up and you've got investors um, and you're trying to, you know, have a sustainable competitive advantage against, you know, daunting players in your space, Disrupt them if you if you possibly can. You do need to think about strategy and that's that's kind of our starting point. Yeah. So
1: I want to come back and, and talk more about that theme of constant experimentation. You know, one one kind of follow-up question, what you, what you were just saying, Matt, or maybe, you know, Pablo can um, chime in on it too. I mean, you know, you, so you, you talk about being ready to scale and investors know you have the product market fit and you're scaling. Do investors want to hear about Constant experimentation, like do they realize that's just how it is with companies at this stage, or do they sometimes want more, if you will, certainty than a tolerance for that constant experimentation?
2: I think it depends, and I think that's why we exist, right? I mean, the investors are there to invest money and help you determine what the optimal, you know, exit is going to be from a growth perspective the operating teams that we have are there to help translate, Hey, in order to get there, we might need to take these steps. We might need to test the waters, et cetera. Um, Obviously it's tough sometimes, right? Like if you keep failing on your experiments, you're going to get pressure on like, well, why are we wasting time doing this? Right. Um, If you have a track record though of failing and then turning those failures into successes, I think obviously you'll have more leeway with your investors and teams. So, just be thoughtful, depending on who you are and who you're working with. Um, the tolerance for experimentation and failure uh, may may drastically vary, kind of like being a parent, right? Like kid takes a lot of risks, but ultimately nothing happens and they're okay, you're fine with it, right? If they're constantly always getting hurt, you're probably gonna keep a tighter leash on them, so.
0: Yeah, and I would add to that, that there is a fine balance, I think, between being in constant beta mode Um, And having a reliable motion for bringing a concept into commercialization. And that's really the focus of constant experimentation. It's not because it's fun to experiment in a lab that we call a business. It's because if you do not, and you begin to grow and scale, and you ride on your past success, it won't be long before you are struggling in the marketplace, competitors are eating your lunch, if not you for lunch. Um, and it's just a competitive imperative to do that. Um, but it does need to be business related. So I think a lot of people make a mistake in thinking about experimentation as what we learned in seventh grade science, where you're trying to you know, prove or disprove some universal truth. <laughs> here we're we're talking about business experimentation where the factors of success and what determines you know failure and success is around business dynamic the business indicators it's revenue right it's cost it's all the drivers of of a business and that I think sometimes gets lost in all of the uh, you know, make nice, you know, continuous improvement stuff and never forget the, the genetics of continuous improvement, right? Mm-hmm. It it came about in, in mm-hmm. wartime. So, and we're in a war right now, right? Every company that we work with is feeling under the gun, so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, you talk about this um, constant experimentation and, you know, you can see that being the culture in a startup. Um, you know, Toyota at different stages there, I think, including some of that history you're alluding to was a startup. I mean, when they first entered the car business, that was a startup on top of the old weaving loom business. And then, like you said, after the war, maybe they were, you know, restarting in in, in different ways. You know, as, as as a company grows, you know one, one thing you write about is, uh, you know, it's a, a phrase I've heard from Toyota people, big company syndrome. Right? I've heard it called big company disease of um avoiding that or not wanting that to set in. I mean, what what have you learned, Matt, either from the Toyota experience or, you know, experience working with other organizations? How do you help guide the leaders of an organization to not lose that startupy, scale-up y constant experimentation as, as they become a grown-up company?
0: Uh, it's not losing sight of the fact that innovation needs to be a strategic priority, a company priority at the very top, if a leader loses um, that focus and says, "Man, our product just don't break," so don't break it. It's working so well. Let's ride this wave um, as long as we can. It is a death knell because what happens is experimentation um, and the engine, the engine being experimentation of innovation, now gets you know put to the side, and then as the company grows, costs balloon. And, you know, there's more people now and gosh, the product is the same. So, well, how am I going to justify my existence? Well, I got to come up with a program and I got to sell it to the leaders, right? And that costs money and those programs proliferate. And then all of a sudden, gosh, the product is now a little bit obsolete. It's a little bit old, looking long in the tooth. We've lost the chops on how to experiment, and how to innovate. And all of a sudden the costs uh, have to be cut back and there's a freeze on all the programs. And all of a sudden you're at a standstill. So it begins at the, you know, at the leader level. And one of the the portfolio companies that we work with has actually made their business about constant experimentation um, at scale, right? So we have an interview there with uh, the CEO of a company that that is their business, is is helping other tech companies um, experiment. So
1: I mean, what, what are your thoughts here, Pablo? Guidance that you would give the companies that are further on their way or have already become a unicorn? How do they not lose that experimental <clears throat> mindset? Yeah, I would say,
2: and I apologize, because I, I do think I'll say something that might, I don't know, it might upset some people. I think it all comes down to leadership at some point, right? I don't think any principals or Matt coming in to do a workshop or a book will make certain human beings want to innovate or do things differently, right? So it's one about making sure people are aware of the principles, but if you don't have the right leader in place or leaders to lead initiatives or that think that way and truly believe in wanting to be innovative and challenge the status quo, I think you will fall into big company syndrome, which is why that term sort of exists, right? And I've been part of uh, two public companies, and again, as, as companies get larger and larger, the organizations are larger. And you've got, you know, if you think about a startup to scale up, it's it's a small group. They move fast; decisions are made quickly. Everything everything is about innovation because you don't have time. Otherwise, you get eaten up. But as you get larger, we're all human beings. We fall into habits of you know processes and stuff. But there are sparks of innovation in every single company, regardless of the size. The key is finding those people, enabling them, um, moving leaders around that can help drive that energy. Um, but I do think liter- leadership above all else will enable the success of innovation.
1: Well, I mean, it seems like, I mean, not to be too flippant about it, but to your spark analogy, a lot of organizations are designed in a way as if like they're intentionally trying to put out those sparks
2: when they, oh, Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's true. Um, and that's why you've also got to have leaders that are politically savvy enough that won't try to you know they can't be bulls in a china shop coming in trying to be like yeah I'm going to innovate because that's not how organizations also work right so there there needs to be some finesse there to get the organization and again back to Matt's point around constant experimentation if you try to drive innovation in the entire company that's never going to happen right so experiment first with a small team or, uh, you know, a smaller product and demonstrate that you can drive innovation um, to sort of have it proliferate.
1: There's a great great excerpt in in the book here. I'm going to kind of paraphrase part of it, but, you know, talking about even pointing back to Toyota, current day Toyota, not startup e-Toyota, but they run over a million experiments annually. A vast majority don't need more than their immediate supervisors permission or involvement to to run a test. Um, I mean, it seems like back to characteristics of certain leaders. I mean, it seems like if a leader, a founder, a leader on some level is just sort of a control freak, they're not gonna be comfortable with this idea of, if you will, unauthorized experiments taking place. I mean, and I, I don't know, you know, to your point, Pablo, I don't know if you can convince someone to the change their mind if they're so locked in, on that idea that I need to approve everything. I don't think you can.
2: Like in my, and again, I'll be, I'll be extreme in my views here, even though the world is not black and white, it's always gray. That kind of leader, what this won't work, right? So do you have to replace that leader? Maybe, maybe not. It just depends what you're trying to accomplish, but maybe you don't try your innovative ideas there and you try them somewhere else. But over time, I think people will see, well, why are people on Sally's team Driving innovation, and they seem to be able to do experiments and challenge the status quo. And I'm over here on Johnny's team, and he's controlling everything. Well, maybe I want to go to Sally's team, right? So over time, innovation
0: wins, um, but you can't force it head on all the time. That's actually a very good point. When if you come directly at innovation, and you you do something to the tune of, uh, and pardon the pun, you know the the old song, "Come on, people." Get together, everybody love one (laughs) another. Come on, everybody get creative, innovate. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, And that's why um, there is a reason we put constant experimentation as subordinate to strategy. Because if your strategy is set correctly um, and you are setting priorities and goals against that strategy that are of a stretch nature that demand resourcefulness, different thinking, you can't not innovate. Right. So that's how that's that's kind of the, the ideal is to make sure that, you know, like when we do our our, our process optimization work um, and even strategy work, we're not shooting for a 10 percent improvement, a 5 percent improvement, even a 15 percent improvement. We start, you know, north of 20, 25 percent as 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 the bogey, um, because we know from experience that anything lower than that, you're going to fall back into the gravitational pull of the way that we've always done it. And we'll just stay longer. We're going to work a little bit harder, but we're not really going to change much. And that's just big companies. And that's, I think we call in the book innovation anemia. Um, It's just weak sauce. (laughs) So, So, so
1: Pablo, I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about what you mean by not just a scale up, but a lean scale up, how that's influenced by what you talk about in the book as being, you know, a lean process, if you will.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we're obviously working with all kinds of scale-ups. And again, um, depending on where you join in the podcast, startups are very early stage, you know, companies scale-ups is that next sort of teenager phase. And then grown ups are, uh, you're graduating sort of public company status. Um, When we talk about lean scale-up, it's companies that are leveraging lean principles to grow in a sustainable way, right? So are they, Do they have a sound strategy and they know where to play, where not to play, right? Are they constantly evaluating their processes uh, to streamline them, remove waste, et cetera? So um, we're looking for, uh, to touch on the point before around having the right leaders, we won't engage with our portfolio companies unless it's the right leadership team that is bought in, because to Matt's point, we've had experiences prior to uh, Insight where sounds like a great idea. Let's try this out, but there really isn't buy-in. And then the project just sort of like falters, right? And so we want to be very focused on, is the CEO bought in, right? Do they think that this is going to have clear outcomes? Have they set goals that they want to achieve that we think are uh, you know, achievable, but unrealistic also to sort of push people? Um, and are we going to have support, right? After we do the engagement, are they going to see it through and continue to drive it? The most successful companies take the work that we've done. So when Matt does his workshop and make it part of the culture, so it's not a one and done, it's, okay, hey, I want to build a PMO office now, a project management office now to help me do this internally. Uh, and Matt's done a good job of training the trainer at some of the portfolio companies. So that's what we mean by a lean scale up is those companies that are sort of embodying um, the basics of lean and just leveraging it to grow more effectively.
0: One of the nice I I would call it a luxury mark um in the lean work, because oftentimes pro- process improvement isn't at, as I referred to before, the, the pointy end of the, the spear, which is revenue impact, right? A lot of it is cost focused. Um then the what I love about the work that Pablo and I get to do is we're working with the sales and, and marketing motion, where every time we do this, we calculate. A, what's at risk revenue-wise, yeah, productivity-wise, but more importantly, what's at risk if we continue doing things the way that we are doing? Nothing gets management or the board's attention more than you start talking about revenue, and that is a luxury, Um, and that helps propel any kind of capability transfer. You're not trying to push water uphill, so to speak. It's like, wow, there's $17 million that's getting pushed in revenue. What the heck? Um, And if you're telling me if you just tweak this one little step just a bit, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, that I can capture that back and even do a little bit better. I'm all in. Oh, and I'm not going to have to spend any more in terms of uh, headcount. I don't need any fancy systems uh, investment. This is just doing things a little bit differently. Yep. Okay. I'm in. So but that's that is the that is the part that i think a lot of lean literature and lean initiatives lack is the fact that they're not revenue facing and we come directly at that sales process and a lot of companies toyota included don't let you talk don't, don't talk about or touch the sales process yeah so i
1: wanted to ask another question about lean process or even just this word process like the little bit i've been around Agile circles or some startup conferences. I've heard people really poo-poo process. They, they like this this aversion to the word. And when I've had you know I've had a chance to talk to people, there's there's almost this assumption that process means like inflexible, that process is bad. So I, I, I'd be curious, Pablo, and you know, in different settings. I mean, do you run across this where people think sales process sounds bad, or is it just a matter of the detail, like how making sure the process isn't too
2: rigid? I think I think it's in the detail and it's definitely in making sure it's not rigid. Because if you think about it, if I'm a sales rep, I want the process to be simple. I, I'm trying to sell something. I don't want to have 20 forms to sign and get this person's approval and go to use this tool. And then to get paid, I got to do X, Y, Z, right? So for us, it's all about having process is important, but making that process as simple as possible, not only for the rep, right, for the person making the sale, but also for the customer. A lot of the work we've done is also the customer doesn't want to be sending contracts back and forth ten times like why am I sending it well, it's got to, it's got to go to this department and this department. they don't care, right They want it simple. And so the beauty is just the simplification of the process. however, Cumbersome it may be, because they're all cumbersome, right? Which ultimately, to Matt's point, results in reduction in time to value, which is better for the customer because they get to use your solution, and it's better for the business because they're um, you know recognizing revenue that much quicker,
1: yeah, I mean those those are familiar themes of reducing waste, making it easier for people to do their job, whether they're on an assembly line or in an operating room or um, selling software and and make it easy. For the customer to do business with you. I mean, those those also pretty core lean principles.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And especially in today's environment where, I mean, everybody's read the news, right? Where there's reductions in force. And so if I have two less people working on a process, well, then I hope to God that process has gotten simplified because I don't have enough people to do the cumbersome process before, right? So not that you should be doing this when there's a time in crisis. And Matt's, Matt's been great to talk about. Lean and the companies that have done really well are those that are constantly thinking about how to do this, whether it's a boom or a you know harsh economic condition, right because those that when we're in a bull market are always experimenting and thinking how to get better are the ones that can scale more effectively
0: you know fun fun fact um and this is this is um something I think you know I don't know if Pablo of you agree, but I think one of the more innovative things that we've ever done. Together is to bring some sales teams together in cross-functional teams, and include, for example, chief legal counsel in the kaizen <laughs> sessions. Um, and interestingly enough, the, um, because oftentimes, and nothing against uh, attorneys, <laughs> um, but in the sales process, can be gatekeepers, and those constant revisions to a sales contract can slow things down. Salespeople hate paperwork. Um I got to work a few months in a in an automotive retail dealership when I was at toyota, and gosh uh the paperwork is just is drowning, mm-hmm. but that lawyer turned to turned out to be sort of the champion uh internally to to this is such a great new process. this is like wow, this actually saves me time and, and work wow mm-hmm. um so i i don 't know how if you think that 's one of the more creative innovative strokes. No, i agree
2: that's that 's why we include as broad of a cross-functional team, because sometimes you're surprised as to who actually understands why we did something a certain way and goes, well, gee, maybe you're right. We shouldn't be doing it that way. Right. Like, um, so we love having a very broad uh, participation rate when we do these sessions.
1: Mm -hmm. So when it comes to lean process, one phrase you used in the book, it was a new phrase to me. I've heard the three words and I, I feel like I know two of the three words pretty well but a Lean Kaizen Sprint. So I, I, I know Sprint- These two are
0: the ones that you know well? Um,
1: the word, well, I it feels like I, I, I'm setting a trap for myself. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the words Lean and Kaizen, I think I have a decent understanding of. The word Sprint, I have heard. I've never participated in a quote unquote Sprint when it comes to say software development. So um, let's just turn it back to the question of what
0: is a Lean Kaizen Sprint? Um, it's, it's sort of, maybe, maybe you're more familiar Mark with, uh, a a word like jishuken um, or, uh, something like, so it's, it just really is, um, it's a little bit of marketing on our part, to be honest with you. Um, but one of the things that we've done is to make sure that these sessions don't run beyond like a six hour window. Mm. Okay. So we're not, we're not in weeks long sessions. There are a lot of Kaizen events. That um, even though they're called sprints, could be more like a design sprint or a product sprint, which are typically two weeks something you know if you, if you read the Google material, they got it down to five days. Um, but our sprint is almost like a hundred meter dash um, to be honest with you, so inside of a six period six hour period of of time, we will have multiple teams working simultaneously on Sometimes the same targets, sometimes different targets, but we will emerge from that six hours with a fully blown experimental test of a solution uh, after having mapped out the process, decided on a problem, calculated the impact, five-wide it, um, come up with a countermeasure or solution, new process, tweak, step, what have you thought through what would have to be in place for it to be successful. And here's our hypothesis, here's our experiment. and here's how quickly it's going to be done and who's going to own it. And they're off and running. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not, I don't think, a traditional way of thinking about Kaizen in general. So right. lack of a better word, that feels like a sprint. The actual working time is 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 literally under five hours. Um, And the rest is sort of readout. Um, And we've translated that into the remote version as well. So during COVID, I ran uh, Kaizen sessions and sprints um, Mm -hmm. in three-hour blocks um, to nobody wants to sit for six hours. But um, still, uh, you cover a lot of ground in a big hurry, but in a disciplined and standardized way. Um, So. Yeah,
1: I know. But with, with the sprint, I mean, and like you know, personally, I don't use Kaizen to mean kaizen event. When I mean kaizen event, I say kaizen event because there are small kaizen improvements. But then what you're talking about with the sprint, this is definitely not the, the classic
0: five-day kaizen event. Correct. And you know, think about it. it's your it's most of our almost all of our work um of our work um, in the last couple of years is with software development companies. So, um, when, and they're B2B, right? So when you are trying to, uh, you know, whether you're talking about the sales process or the post sales process, there is a sales cycle. Um, and we're trying to come up with a, a fix for that, trying to shrink time to revenue, shrink time to value, shrink onboarding time, implementation time. I think in one case, we took 66% out of the implementation uh, time. But you, but that takes a while to actually work through the system in terms of the experiment itself. But the thinking part, boom, get it done inside of a day um, because you're dealing with salespeople. They don't you, taking people out of the sales role is always a struggle and is always uh, not the easiest thing to do. So you got to make it tight. You got to make it exciting. Got to make it different and involve them in the fix. And then, you know, so that's why we call it that. Okay.
1: And I am going to admit, I, and instead of going to Wikipedia, I went to the lean enterprise Institute, lean lexicon. Just you can is a word that I've heard, but I don't normally use. So that means basically like a hands-on learning workshop. Would you agree with a lean lexicon definition of that, at least in a
0: couple of words. The the practical, um, yeah. So it, it's it's sort of like an OODA loop, like a, a, a you know what a fighter pilot would do, uh, mixed with a continuous improvement process. Um, but the way it played out, at least in my experience at Toyota, is. There is something of a critical nature that needs to be addressed. And so you pull together a special group of, of masters, so to speak, and you work around the clock until it gets fixed. Sometimes that's 24, 36 hours without sleep, um, believe it or not. So um, that's, what I'm, that's the effect that I'm trying to bring to, uh, to our work without having to ask anyone to work over six hours.
1: Pablo, I'm not asking you to defend sales, but to chime in on the perspective of like what, you know, um, what are your thoughts on applying, you know, the sort of rapid experimentation to sales process?
2: Yeah, it's been, it's been tough originally, right? Cause Matt's right. You take, you know, you tell, you tell a sales leader and a CEO, I need X number of salespeople out of the field for a day and a half. And they're like, it's a day and a half of not selling. Right. Mm-hmm. But when you say, Hey, we plan to take out twenty percent, twenty-five percent, thirty percent, and that results in ten million dollars more in revenue, um, et cetera. Uh, it's worth it. And to Matt's point, you're breaking it up into easy chunks. I think when people have come out of it, they go, "Wow, this was great!" Thanks. That was again. Remember, I'm part of the process, right? I'm, I am the solution. I'm not just sitting in a workshop being told, "Hey, we're going to fix this for you." Like I'm asking you to come and solve a problem in your job. So. Uh, having now done this so many times, people love it. They are part. Of, they're, they love being part of it. And um, when the MVP then turns into a success, of course, they love it because it impacts your job.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So before I wrap up, we've been joined again by Matt May and Pablo Dominguez. Uh, the book is Over Matt's Shoulder. I'll hold up a copy here, What a Unicorn Knows, How Leading Entrepreneurs Use Lean Principles to Drive sustainable growth. And I, I think it's just fascinating to see you know these dots get connected between Toyota and, and startups and, and companies at different stages in between. Um, the final question I wanted to ask and, and hear a little bit from each of you about um esprit de corps or you know building team spirit and like lessons that come from um, Toyota or or even you know other good examples of of having that team spirit, how, how would you describe it? Maybe Matt, let me ask you first. And then Pablo, like what, what do you draw on from Toyota that's transferable in terms of esprit
0: de corps? Uh Toyota struggled with this. I'll be quite candid. Um, you know, their, their management style is um, it's the best way to put it. They were casting about looking for other models and um One of them happened to come from an unlikely source, but it came from uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory Um, here in, I'm in California, Pasadena, California, part of NASA. And there is a gentleman um, who is a project team leader for Mars Pathfinder who had written a book called High Velocity Leadership. Hmm. Um, Regular guest. Uh, coming in to talk to University of Toyota uh, Sessions. And I learned a lot. And he had this uh, grease and glue model of leadership. And it just always, pardon the pun, stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the principles we principles we talk about um, in the book before Esprit de Corps are really about the grease part of it. How do you remove the stuff that is getting in the way of value to a customer. So whether it's friction, whether it's waste, whether it's inertia, whether it's drag, all of the things that any physical body um, organization or otherwise meets in trying to move ahead. Um, But there needs to be something that holds them all together. And we're also fortunate enough to, um, Pablo and I, to be associated with the gentleman who actually introduced me to Pablo, who has a military background. And saying in, in military, because if you think about esprit de corps, almost all the work uh, that's been done research-wise focuses on military or paramilitary organizations, that team spirit, that, you know, my brother is in the trench next to me kind of, of spirit. Um, and he comes from a military background, and they have a saying, mission first, people always. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing to me in, in spending time with him, and he has a, a nice interview in our book to uh, toward the end of the book. Was that the way that you develop people is actually the opposite of mission first, people always. You develop the people first so that they can accomplish the mission. So it's a nice duality that I actually didn't realize, and if you look at all of the leadership research that has been done recently, they will it, it will show you that those that are uh, results Focus, which is kind of, we think about the military. That's what we think about, right? It's, give me the results. It's a mission, 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 get it accomplished. But when they juxtapose that with leaders that also have sort of the softer side, the empathic side, the grease part of keeping people together, the relationship side, they're viewed as a leader, 70% more effective than those that are just results oriented. And I got to learn a lot from um, this gentleman. Um and so all I'll say here is that, um, when it comes to esprit decor, we think about the individual first, their their values. Are they connected to the values of uh, of the company? Is there a people culture fit? So we've talked about product market fit, we've talked about go to market fit, and the bookend to all of this is people culture fit. Mm -hmm. Um, because without that, um, at, at the end of the day, um, what are you, right? Because we, you know, a company isn't, isn't anything more than, you know, a collection of human beings. So Mm -hmm. we had to have that element in there. It's what keeps things together. And that's about all I can really say. I am not a leadership guru, uh, uh, you know, by any means, I don't think Pablo would say that he is uh, a guru, but he is a leader. And I think he sort of understands that mission first, people always, and you develop it in the opposite direction. And, and Pablo, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So Pablo, let me turn it to you, uh, maybe for the last word on this, of, of building team spirit, either within sales or even like more broadly. I know. Like, Sometimes things get dysfunctional within a company. There's finger pointing across different functions, especially, let's say, the tech side of a company and the customer facing side of a company. That doesn't happen at Kinexus, by the way. So that's not who I'm <laughs> thinking of. I'm wearing their shirt. I just want to be clear that is not at all that previous organizations have been around. But um, let me bring it back to the question, Pablo, like your thoughts on Esprit Decor, either within sales or more broadly.
2: Yeah, I, I will echo everything Matt said. Um, I'll give you an analogy. I, I don't row, but if you look at, uh, you know, university rowing teams, um, you could argue that if you applied lean principles, you've got the fastest boat, the lightest boat. You've done the mechanics; your oars are perfect. But think about what happens. Like all that is useless if you don't have the people that are rowing on the boat with the person telling them how to row rowing in unison and working together, right? All it takes is one person, one person's or not to be rowing. And it doesn't matter the efficiency of the boat, et cetera, or the quality of the water, et cetera. Um, So it's tough. Organizations are living, breathing things, right? Because they're made up of humans with egos. And so to Matt's point, there will always be friction. There will be drag. There will be inertia. Um, And I think the job of a leader is to minimize that and bring people together. And so it is the glue, the esprit de corps. Without that, honestly, nothing I think would work. And back to our point around having the right leaders in place, that honestly makes the entire difference. Without the the right leaders or the leader, you are not going to be able to drive change, whether it's this change or something else. So absolutely, extremely critical
0: and i'm going to embarrass i'm going to embarrass um pablo right now and just tell him and and you that if if you had to ask me what pablo's superpower is it's it's building a team there's a healthy percentage of people on our team um that have followed him um, at his request obviously through the same number of iterations of his career that I have so probably a third of the company are folks that I've worked with and folks in our portfolio companies so if, if you know he knows whereof he speaks when it comes to this far better than I ever will <laughs> Thank you Matt
1: <laughs> well thank you uh, Matt and Pablo for for being here today. Uh, Matt May, Pablo Dominguez, the book, again, is What a Unicorn Knows, How Leading Entrepreneurs Use Lean Principles to Drive Sustainable Growth. I'll put all sorts of links in the show notes to Matt's past episodes, um, the book, Insight Partners. And uh, we, we were talking about it just briefly before we started recording, Matt and I, uh, 2009, little conversation about Twitter. That's <laughs> still on YouTube. Uh, boy, early days of Twitter. Um, Let's not do another podcast about Twitter these days.
0: (laughs) At at least don't send it to Elon.
1: (laughs) Well, again, thank you. uh, Thank you for being here. And thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. Really, really enjoyed it. Pablo, thanks, Matt. Thank you. For links and more information about Matt, Pablo, their company, their new book, and more, you can look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 469.